there, it's Mike Tramp, and you're listening to White Lion Fever, where rock and roll is still alive like it always has been and it always will be. Hello, everybody, and welcome to White Lion Fever. My name is Steve Mascord, uh, beginning of this week's show, uh, but it is the final part of our interview uh, with Rob. From Midnight City, Rob. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I, I one thing that I've noticed um, in your uh, on your social media and everywhere is that you proudly call yourself a hair metal band, and a lot of the bands from actually back in the day hate the term. <laughs> um, what, what's the th- what's the thinking there? Because I know you were in, you know, the, the previous band you were in, previous full time band you were in was was different. Like it was kind of power pop a little bit. Mm. Um, so obviously it was like a deliberate thing that not only are we going to play hair metal, but we're going to tell everybody it's hair metal. Um, what was involved in, in that in that decision? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, well, I mean, for, for me, you know, I mean, uh, that's that's the, the hair metal stuff is, is what I grew up on, you know, uh, from being a you know nine-year-old kid. It was just all I, all I listened to, you know, it was, it was my entire album collection is, is all that stuff. So um, I was just massively, massively, massively into it and always have been. Um, and yeah, played in obviously many, many, many bands before this. Um, the band prior to this, I was in, which I, I was in it for actually over 10 years, was a band called Teenage Casket Company, which was kind of like you say, kind of more of a power pop. It's, it's kind of like more of a, a cheap trick sort of thing going on, uh, a little bit of like Marvelous Three, um, Butch Walker's band, and and um american hi-fi a lot of that kind of stuff and and that was basically at the time when i formed that band it was here in the uk i mean there was just it it, the the, you know if you're talking about hair metal whatever melodic rock whatever you want to call it i mean it was just it wasn't even dead it was just non-existent that scene there was just no but there was no bands and and i i i was in a band prior to that and we would literally go out and play in front of like 10 people because just nobody was interested. It was just such a, like a, almost like a dinosaur type of music. And at the time, you know, I was only in my like mid twenties <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is, this is, this is no fun. You know, I'm going out and playing gigs and I'm playing in front of like, you know, old guys in like Marillion t-shirts and stuff. <laughs> so I was just like, there's gotta be a way around this. And, and, um, you know, because it was, it was really at a point where it was like, well, I either I'm going to have to try and update what I'm doing um, or I'm just going to have to just not do it, you know, not do it for a while. Because, you know, everything, no matter what it, it seems the most unfashionable thing in the world right now, in five, five, six years, it will come back around. And it'll be cool again, you know. Um, so at the time, yeah, I started listening to. Uh, you know, some other bands, like I said, like Marvelous Three was a, a big influence, which was Butch Walker's band uh, before he kind of became the sort of big producer, songwriter that he is now. Um, you know, American Hi-Fi, uh, 40 Foot Ringo, uh, uh, you know, Sugar Cult, bands like that. And and it was kind of like, you know, um, it, it was kind of cool because there was still elements of kind of 80s rock, the big choruses and the melodies, but it was just sort of, just trimmed down a little bit, you know, you, you get rid of the guitar solos, you know, you, the songs would be a bit shorter, a bit, bit more kind of straight to the point. So I, I did that for, for a good 10 years and, um, you know, had a great time with it. We released five albums, two American tours, uh, had a great time. But then that kind of, 
you know, just came to its natural end. And then it was just, you know, I, I just got to, I've just got to do this. I've got to go back to what I should have always been doing, you know. Um, and obviously at the time as well, and, and I'm, st I, I'm still a member of uh, Tiger Tales, which is another obviously very big, you know, well, big band from back in the day. Uh, so that that kind of was sort of my, like my doorway into it as well. And it was just when, when I just, once my old band was done, you know, I'd written, pretty much wrote the first album before there was a band and then just decided this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to find guys that kind of, you know, I, you know, look a certain way and, and, uh, and want to do what I'm doing. And, and, and just to kind of be just un, unashamedly proud of what, we do what kind of music because you're right you know a lot of people do kind of frown on the hair metal uh, title and and a lot of people think it's silly and you know it's cheesy and and it's it's not really got that much credibility but you know the better the, they you know this style of music creates <laughs> the best melodies and the best songs and the best hooks and well obviously in my opinion anyway so yeah, it was just a really, really conscious decision to to go back to my roots, and and I found a bunch of guys that all wanted to do the same thing, and and all sort of believed in the same thing, and it's 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 worked incredibly well so far. Has the uh, has the audience changed from old guys in Marillion t-shirts? <laughs> not much, not much. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's still a lot of those around. You know that that was one of the things I was thinking when I went back out, and I was kind of like, okay, I wonder, I wonder if it's going to be the same. And to be, I, I'm not going to lie to you, it, it is pretty much the same, but it's a much bigger audience. So instead yeah. of instead of there being three guys in Marillion t-shirts, there's at least you know like you know a few hundred at every show. Um, but having said that, um, I, I think that's mainly in the UK. It, it tends to be. I mean, obviously, you get 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 girls coming out to the gigs as well. But in Europe, it's completely different. In Europe, um, the the audience is much younger. You know, so you get. Um, it's kind of cool because we have that kind of crossover in our kind of music where it is. You know, it, it, it's a little bit melodic rock and a little bit AOR at times, but it's it can also be kind of glam and sleazy at times. So you can. Mm -hmm. You know, you can you can attract the kind of the guys that might listen to FM and and those type of bands, but you cannot. We're also tapping into you know like Crash Diets, um, yeah. uh, Crazy Licks. So uh, in Europe, you do tend to get a lot of younger kids, like teenagers, coming out to the gigs, which is great. You know, they they you know they're seventeen, eighteen years old coming out in their their Crash Diet T-shirts and, and they're loving it. So it's kind of we have a in Europe we have a really wide range of people and a, a, a especially age-wise, a big, big age range of people coming to see us. Have you got a theory why that's the case in Europe? Uh, is it something about the, what is it? Is it about the radio environment? Is it about, you know? Yeah, I, I don't know, really. I think, I think, it, I, I do think in the UK, um, the style of music that we play, so more, we really are kind of like the odd one out. You know, there's a lot of, you know, you kind of, you get, you in the UK, you, you get the more sort of bluesy, bluesy rock bands and and um there's certain there's definitely no band that sounds like midnight city in the uk we're the only ones doing it so um i think open, i guess <laughs> well yeah 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 apart from the big guns yeah yeah but uh but yeah i think it's something maybe something to do with that and i think um whereas in europe it, it's kind of you know they have a lot more you know crazy licks are kind of they they kind of sound we sound similar there's a lot of similarities in those two bands and like i said crash diet reckless love heat 
um, you know, Santa Cruz, all those bands who are all from Europe, you know, they're all from mainly the Scandinavian countries, but the, you know, there's some, there's some other bands from different countries in Europe, but I think it's just because that's more, it's, it's considered cooler out there than it is over here. Whereas over here, it's more like bands like, um, you know, like uh, Bigfoot and Massive Wagons and, you know, not putting those bands down, but, you know, it's like chalk and cheese. We're just a completely, in a completely different genre of music altogether from those guys, you know. So mm. I think we just suit better with, with the, what's going on in Europe. So, yeah, it works um, better for us. The one thing I wanted to ask you, you know, you're clearly a lifer. You know, you've been playing since you were nine and, You'll probably be when you're the age of those guys in the Meridian T-shirts. You're probably still likely to be on stage. Um, um, how hard has it been over the course of your career to earn a living? And, and you would have seen it, um, you know, get good, really good times and really tough times. Um, can you paint a picture for us and I suppose compare it to what it's like uh, today as a as a working musician? Yeah, I mean, I, it, I mean, it was really tough. Uh, it, it's it's like being being a musician and, and do when you really commit your life to it. It, it it's such it's just this all, all the time a roller coaster. And you have times where you're really successful and you're making a load of money, uh, and then there's times when you just you just aren't making any money, you know. And and it and it's really frightening because you you know you don't really do anything else. This is what you do and this is what you've always done. So you kind of like you paint yourself into a corner. Um, thankfully, I mean. Uh, the last, you know, five, six years, you know, I've, I've been doing great. Um, it's obviously not been helped by um, what, what's been going on the last year and a half. But um, I think also, I think as a as any guy out there making a living from music will tell you, though, you can't just do it doing one band or, or doing one thing. You have to do be doing a lot of different things to make a living. So, um you know, so obviously I, the Midnight City thing is, is you know, my, my life really, you know, it, it's what I, I live for. But I also, you know, I, I, I sing in Tiger Tales, um, who obviously haven't been very active recently because of what's been going on. But I would I would go out and do, you know, a couple of tours with them a year usually. Um, I also have a tribute band that I do. Uh, and that would be, again, you know, last last year i think i cancelled maybe a hundred shows you know which were all well-paid gigs you know um but usually you know i've got that as well um i i teach guitar uh and then i also write songs for other people and i do session work you know i i am actually in the studio on friday um with a guy that i'm, I'm working with and you know I, I play guitar and bass and drums and stuff and so it's a lot of sort of uh, different things, a lot of plate spinning, really. Um, <laughs> you know, but all that combined kind of works, and and then you can kind of make make an okay living out of it, you know. And it's and at times, like I say, you know, you can actually make a really good living on out of it. But then other times, you it's a little bit more of a struggle. But you've just, I think, more than anything, if, you, if it's something that you you you've decided that this is what you're going to do, you've just got to do it and, and find a way of making it work. Um, and like I said, just have just be doing a lot of different things so you can earn it a little bit from this and a little bit from that, and you know, and then uh, and then you get by. Well, let's hope by the time uh, the the new album Itchy Can't Scratch, um, by the time it runs its course, you've made a heap of money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. That would be nice. <laughs> let's um let's have a final song and thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Right. Uh, well, uh, let's have a, let's have a think. 
How about uh, one of my favourite songs off the album, uh, I Don't Need Another Heartache?
Hey, this is Rob Wall from Midnight City, and you're listening to White Line Fever. Welcome back, and we've got a, um, a guy from a band I've admired from afar, um, a long way afar, because I was in Australia most of the time. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's Danny from Crazy Licks. Hey, Danny, how are you going, mate? Hey, I'm good, thanks. Thanks for joining us, thanks for joining us. Um, exciting times, we were just talking, uh, well, I don't know if we're off air, probably some people heard us about, you know, you've got some gigs coming up soon. Um, yeah. And... You got some um, singles out at the moment. Uh, the Reach Out Anthem for America, which is an amazing video. Um, what's the plan, mate? Are you um, is this is there is there an album of, uh, coming up soon, or, or are you going to keep putting out singles? Yeah, no. This is uh, we released our last single rise uh, above a few weeks ago, and uh, with the video. So that was the last single up to the album, which is now released on November fifth, mm. uh, more or less worldwide. I think there may be some delays in some regions, but. Uh, and the day after we're doing the uh, release gig, which will be our first live show in almost 20 months. So, and that will be held in our hometown of Malmo. So uh, everything is kicking off. I'm, I'm just basically waiting right now. So, And, and uh, what have you been doing all this time? I mean, everyone's been writing and recording. And uh, I spoke to uh, John Carabi the other day. He said he learned how to do, learn how to use Pro Tools. <laughs> been yeah, sort of yeah. uh, studying. What have you been doing? Well, I've been doing a little uh, bit of everything. Uh, just as, as uh, Karabi said, I, I taught myself some video editing. I improved my production skills with Pro Tools as well. Uh, I've actually done my first uh, full album production from start to finish with every everything involved, including mixing, which was for a British artist called Chess Kane. Uh, we released that album in March of this year, so I spent a lot of uh, last year uh, learning all this stuff. Uh, so. So yeah, it's been a it's been a fruitful year uh, from that perspective. But uh, of course, it's it's not been able to we haven't been able to play anywhere, and uh, all the live shows have been stopped. So so yeah, a lot of recording and uh, and uh, demoing stuff for the new uh, album. Of course. Did you did you come over here to um, uh, to work with a British artist, or did you do it all by? We did Digitally. it all all by distance. <laughs> so. Um, Actually, when we started the project, uh, that was before the, the, the COVID outbreak, uh, and we had demoed almost uh, the full album by January, and then the outbreak came in February, and we started thinking, what, what are we going to do now? Uh, so we uh, quickly figured that it would be a lasting pandemic, you know? So uh, so we kind of started looking at, at alternatives, and we did it all, all uh, on long distance in the end. But I think the result came out great, so uh, I learned a lot from that process as well. And um, tell us about the, the record, um, if you could describe it uh, to those of us who've not heard it. Uh, any, any, uh, is it, is it, you know, in keeping with, with what you've done in the past, or you got any, uh, any, any left or right turns there? Well, I think, uh, in a sense, you know, the old fans will definitely recognise uh, the album. It's not far off from what we've done before. Uh, Production-wise, there is a difference because we've used uh, Tobias Lindell to the, to do the final mixing. Uh, compared to Chris Laney who's done the three last albums so there is a difference in the sound I would say it's more an updated sound a bit more modern I would say but uh, that that's modern by my standards because his sound is he had his peak like 10 years ago so it's mm. not a modern sound by any means um, <laughs> anymore but it's it's definitely more towards what people expect from productions these days so um, it's a bit more modern a bit, a bit more punch to the to the production to the mixing 
And as for the songwriting, we've involved some external songwriters this time, uh, more than we've done in the past. Because the last album I wrote like 95% of all the material, whereas this, this time we have actually external songwriters doing uh, some of the songs, uh, mostly without even um, input from, from uh, most band members. I've, I've joined on one song and just done some lyrics. So, so that's definitely a difference. But I think, uh, you know, without telling people, I don't think they would even be able to pick out those songs from the album, because I think they fit very well with the style that we've done. So uh, we've, we've been, uh, uh, it's been very important for us to involve songwriters that could write something that sounded crazy next from the start. So we don't want to wander off too far. And are the songwriters anyone we would have heard of? Well, I guess uh, there, it's, it's mostly Swedish people. Um, there is uh, Ken Sandin, who used to be in a band called Alien, uh, who you might have heard of. Uh, there is Thomas Wikström, who, who used to be in Ferion and, and uh, uh, in a band, oh, I forget, the Candlemas, right? So, so uh, those would probably be the most, most known, but, but uh, other people who have been more behind the scenes, so to speak, but who have written a lot of stuff for uh, melodic rock bands in the past. So, um, yeah, more, more songwriters involved this time. Okay, let's. Um, I warned you for the uh, audio part of this uh, program. We're going to play some music. Um, do you want to play one of the new singles, or your choice? I don't want to lead you. Sure. Yeah, I think uh, "Rise Above" would be uh, would be fitting. That's the last thing that we've released, and uh, it's pretty fresh. Uh, the opening track for the album as well, and I think it kicks ass. Is there a story behind it? Is there a, a theme there? Well, uh, it's you know the whole album is based loosely around the theme of uh, kind of martial arts uh, karate movies of the 80s, uh, which uh, we all uh, enjoy very much in the band, um, and of course a bit inspired by the revival of that thing like, by shows like Cobra Kai, for example. Um, so I went back and rewatched a lot of the uh, childhood uh, movies that I really enjoyed. So uh, the song itself is is based around that theme. Uh, and a lot of other songs on, on the album actually about uh, different settings of fighting and um, and, uh, and martial arts and stuff. So, uh, so yeah, Rise Above would be great.
I'm Dan Rex, the lead singer of Crazy Licks, and you're watching White Line Fever. Welcome back to White Line Fever, and for the people watching, thanks for watching, and thanks for continuing to watch. We're back with... Uh, um, that was quick, that song. It was. It's the magic of technology and editing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> We've got Carmine a piece, and I kind of, in my mind, because the interview is in three lots, the, the, the first bit, you know, we're going to um, talk about, um, you know, what's been happening recently. And the second bit, I'd written down some points, which, I, you know, maybe has been getting asked about from time to time. Um, but um, the first one I got from an interview I was listening to or watching was about the Bullet Boys and how the Bullet Boys were actually part of King Cobra and the songs yeah. were, the, many of the songs on the first record, wonderfully produced <clears throat> by Ted Templeman, you know, the, it was already, um, they were done. Um, yeah, almost done. I'm pretty much done. Like, so there are two hits, uh, Smooth Up In You was a King Cobra song. Mm. And For the Love of Money was my idea to do with King Cobra. Mm. You know, and they knew I was pissed off at them. <laughs> you know, and then uh, when I did a King Cobra 3 record release on my own little label in, in L.A., I, uh, they came. They heard mm. about it and they came. They knew where I lived and they brought me a gold record. It's up on the wall here. Yeah, yeah. A Bullet Boys gold record. To try yeah, and wow. smooth me into like, you know, we know Ooh, you had yeah. something to do with it and we screwed you kind of. <laughs> but I hope this makes up for it. So That's how many members of, of, of Bullet Boys were in King Cobra? You gave Lonnie Vincent his stage name. Three. Three out of five. Yeah. Three out of five. Wow. And what were the circumstances of them splitting? Why did, why did that happen? I don't, have a, I don't have a clue because the guy that got him the deal, who's their manager, was King Cobra's merchandise guy. You know? And we, you know, Mark Free left the band. Johnny Rod was playing with Wasp. So I brought Lonnie, Mark Turin, and, and Mick was still in the band. Matter of fact, I named Lonnie. His name was Lonnie Miller. I said, dude, you can't have the same name as the manager. <laughs> you know, Lonnie Miller and Alan Miller, you sound like father and son here, you know? Yeah, so yeah. what's your middle name? He said, Vincent. I go, how about Lonnie Vincent? He goes, okay. So he became Lonnie Vincent. And that's his name in, in the Bullet Boys. You know? <laughs> and his career became Lonnie Vincent, you know? Wow. And, and uh and I, I don't understand what happened there. You know, I didn't even, we never even heard of anything. All of a sudden, it was like one day, we're leaving the band, we have, we have a deal with Warner Brothers, and we got another drummer, and we have a deal with Warner Brothers, and Ted Telvin was going to produce us. I was like, whoa, where did that come from, you know? Mm. And then it uh, I came out and did well, and that really pissed me off, because I knew, <coughs> you know, we, we were shopping for a new deal as well mm -hmm. you know and uh using the same songs but but uh we didn't uh start soon enough i guess it yeah. was weird i did mean, so long ago i don't remember actually the, the day that it, it actually happened i just remember the aftermath of it all you know and and another record you got on your wall which i saw on on youtube is the paul stanley solo album from 78 yes. um, and i i really haven't I haven't heard much about like how the people who contributed to that um, record, how it went down. Did you go in and the song, like, did you, were you alone? Were you in a room with other musicians? Was it done in a day, two days? Um, what was it like working on Paul Stanley's solo? <laughs> well, mine was done in one day. Mm -hmm. And I just flew in from playing in uh, Asia with Rod. And uh, 
And me and Paul were good friends at that at that point. We, we used to come. He loved Rod, first of all. Mm-hmm. So he'd come hang out at our shows. I'd take him to parties at Rod's house. He'd come to my house. We had an old Jaguar, a 1961 Mark 9. And one day, me and Paul went to a minus muffler place to replace the muffler. And those are the days when, you know, they were still in makeup. So when he was out of makeup, nobody knew who he was, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, I can't take that now. So, uh, <laughs> so nobody knew who he was. And, and I was playing with Rod. You know, we were doing six nights at the forum. It's 120,000 people, you know, selling uh, records, like millions and millions of records. So we pulled in at the Jag and this long-haired guy behind the counter, hey, you guys in a band? <laughs> I said, yeah, we play around. He goes, yeah, I play too, you know. And then he went in to fix the car. And when Paul said, he should only know who's standing in his lobby. <laughs> So that was funny, but yeah, me and Paul were good friends, and uh, and he asked me to play on the solo record, and I can't remember if I played on more than one song. I think I did, because you know I came in, I was fried, I didn't sleep, you know, coming in from Asia, you know, a thirteen-hour flight, and I went right into the studio, you know, mm. and I think I did more than one song. But as you, as we all do with records, you know, you record a bunch, you over-record, and then you pick the best ones that came out. Yeah. So the one that I played on, uh, Take Me Away, was the one that uh, the batch of songs that I did. It wasn't because of my playing. They didn't go on, you know. But then a funny thing happened after that album. I went on on a clinic tour. You know, I was always doing clinic tours. I have voices going away. And uh, first, first clinic tour, the first date, somebody says to me, Hey, what were those fills you did on Paul Stanley's album on Take Me Away? And honestly, I don't know. Because when I record, even today, I just play whatever comes out, comes out. And then, like, that's why I have a problem doing videos. If you look at the new video I just did with my friend Fernando Perdomo, we got the new album, uh, A Peace Perdomo Project app. Right? Download the app. (laughs) And I'm playing to my drums. It's hard for me to play the fills that I played on the record. Because it just comes from my heart, not from my head, you know? Mm-hmm. So I didn't know on this clinic. Next day, next day, another clinic. Same question. And I knew I didn't know, so I told him straight out, I'm sorry, I got this question yesterday. I don't remember. You know, I don't know what I did. So the third day, I said to the store owner, you got that Paul Stanley new album by any chance on a cassette or something? He goes, no, but the three doors down, there's a record store. You could probably buy it there. You have a Walkman? I go, yeah. So I went next door. I, he sent somebody next door, and he and he bought it. Sure, I put in my Walkman. I listened to it. Go, oh, yeah, okay. I remember now. Sure enough, the next three clinics, <laughs> everybody asked me about that song. You know, and I, you're I, able I, said, to help well, I did this, I did that, I did this, and now I knew what I did. <laughs> a more I did, recent, sorry, sorry. And when I did the Pink Floyd record, the same kind of thing happened. I went in, I played to a tape. They had a four track with a clip. I filled up, I don't know, four or five, they're 30 minutes long, um, 24 track reels with Bob Ezrin, the producer. And he called me and said, I got a, I got a band I'm producing that's screaming for Carmine drum fills. I said, who's the band? He said, Pink Floyd. He goes, where's Nick? 
And I knew Nick. I knew all those guys. And I said, no, Nick's calluses are soft. They want some new blood. So they got you and Jim Kelton. I said, okay. So I went in. I did it. I filled up the thing. I played on the whole track. Then I left. He says, call me back in a week. I'll let you know how it sounds. Okay. So I call him back in a week. Bob, how is it? He goes, fantastic. Well, when can I hear it? He goes, I'm still working on it. Can we another week? I'll call him back in a week. Unbelievable is the next word. Call him back again. That's not three or four weeks is gone. It keeps coming up with new adjectives, you know? So finally, I mean, I'm doing this movie called Black Roses. It's a heavy metal horror movie, real crappy one. It ended up on TV, you know, late night TV and the horror chiller theater kind of movies. And I play a monster at the end, the whole thing, you know? So, so I call him. And before I called, before I got the answer, I heard on the radio, the new Pink Floyd records out with Carmine Peace on it. And, 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 uh, and Jim Keltner. And I said, you gotta be kidding me, man. So in, in Canada, they have all those underground malls because it's so cold over there. So I went downstairs, I asked the hotel lobby, is there a record shop down here? Goes, yes. I go downstairs. I see the record shop. I buy the cassette. I go up to my room and I listen to my performance. And I said, wow, pretty cool. Yeah, so, and that That's one amazing. was five times platinum. I only got the gold and the platinum. But I guess if I really want to, I can go get the other four, four in a case or five in a case, you know? Mm, wow. I don't know where to put them. Wow, yeah, you, you need to... Bigger house, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> we'll to this house. But my <laughs> wife don't let me put them in the house. Everything's in the in the studio here. <laughs> now no, another kiss question. This one, I don't know. You, you, Vinnie Vincent. Be Vinnie Vincent. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> well, he's he's a freaking weirdo. I like to say, you know, great talent, great songwriter. Great player. Before he started doing his Vinnie Vincent albums, he played like crap on those albums. I mean, he's trying to be Ingvay Malmsteen on those albums. Before that, when he was playing like heavy blues rock, he was awesome. And Gene and Paul called me before they, they got him. I said, well, I heard you work with Vinnie Cassano, was his name. <clears throat> and I said, yeah. He goes, well, we're thinking of bringing him a kiss. What do you think? I said, trouble. He's going to be trouble. A great player, good songwriter, a trouble. He brought him into the band, and guess what? He was trouble. And then years go by, he disappeared for 20 years. And just before COVID last year, he, he surfaced somehow with doing some in store things down in Nashville or somewhere. I, I, I forgot how it happened. But anyway, the guy who's promoting it heard that I played with Vinny back in the day and Carmine and the Rockers was the band. Actually got some pictures of that. Pretty hilarious. And um, he said, look, we're thinking of doing a Vinnie Vincent gig and he wants to use uh, Rob Fleischman to sing. And, you know, we're talking about maybe you playing drums. I said, I haven't talked to Vinny in 25 years. And when the last time I talked to him, we were enemies. So he said, well, <clears throat> I'll give you his number. Maybe you guys can have a chat. And I talked to him for four hours. You know, it was like unbelievable. Was, he, he told me, me and my brother Vinny had a company called uh, the Peace Brothers Drum Rentals. 
He said, I rent, we rented him a drum set for a month at no charge. <clears throat> and I said, oh, I didn't know that. I said, my, my manager, Alan, must have done that because he was running it. He said, yeah, I had it. I wanted to, I never got to thank you. I said, oh, great. And we're talking. Everything's cool. And so then he said, you know, so you want to play together? I said, yeah. Have any bass players? Which I recommend to Tony Franklin. You know, I love Tony. So we got Tony. So the promoter got Tony, me, and Vinny. And then Robert Fleischman bowed out. So I got this guy, Jim Crean, that sings with me and my brother in Drum Wars. He's a really good singer. So the promoter paid everybody a deposit, paid Vinny a lot more than a deposit. And then little by little, things started getting weird again. Next thing I know, Vinny canceled the gigs, right? And he screwed the promoter. And I ended up being you know, friendly with the guy. He also booked speaking gigs, which sometimes I do some rock history talks, you know? And uh, I said, look, you know, he canceled, I'll give you the money back. He said, no, no, you put your time aside, you know, to do it and you and Tony keep the money. You know, he said, Vinny screwed me for, I don't know how many thousands, he said. And uh, well, that's the Vinny Vincent story. And you've not heard from him since. I haven't heard from him. Now he's doing these gigs with the sucker people that go in to see him. You know, he'll, he'll buy a Gibson, uh, a Stratocast guitar for 150 bucks. He'll sign it and sell it for five grand. And these people buy it. You know, I get 12 people. You know, to one of his events, maybe 10 or 12 people, and they'll pay a thousand bucks to get in to meet Vinnie Vincent without makeup, looking very strangely transgender. Let's have another song. What song can we play for the listeners? Uh, why don't you play Take Me Away?
days would never end It seemed our lives had just begun I can't stay, I make my way I'm out of peace, and you're listening to White Line Fever. Keep rocking. Uh, welcome back. I really felt that uh, I should dedicate a show or a part of a show or at least uh, mention um, the great rock journalist Malcolm Dome, who we, we lost just over um, a week ago, and I noticed that uh, my next guest has, has already paid tribute to him in, in a few places, and in fact that Malcolm may have written some liner notes just very recently for, for this fellow's Band. So I'm sorry to introduce him on a sombre note, but I promise that we will all, um, you know, the, um, 
enthusiasm and cheeriness will pick up as we go along with our conversation. But uh, from Twisted Sister, JJ French. How are you, JJ? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. No, um, it's, it's our pleasure. Yeah, I just thought um, we maybe could start off by talking a little bit about Malcolm. He's written some liner notes for you just in the last few months. Is that right? Yeah. Um, our new um, double vinyl album coming out uh, which is a greatest hits live in studio package uh, in next week um, has six liner notes, one from each member of Twisted Sister and one from Malcolm Dome. And, uh, and you know, it's not very often where you email someone and say, Hey, I'm going to be in London next week. Let's have lunch. And then find out that he died. <laughs> so I had just sent him an email saying, Hey, I'm going to be in town next week. Let's have lunch. And then I get a text from my tour manager and um, it's listen on so many levels. He has been an enormous friend to me and the band, an enormous champion. He got it from the very beginning. He wrote about us so eloquently in Kerrang and in multiple magazines and and he's been on multiple liner notes because he's been at every major show we've ever played. Um, I'm shocked, you know. I, I mean, I contacted him in May and I said, Malcolm, we're going to do this album, uh, and it's going to have um, it's going to have songs from Hammersmith, Marquee, and Astoria, and uh, you know, I need just a, a paragraph from you because you were at all three shows, which spans. Um, 30 years, you know, and uh, he wrote these beautifully eloquent notes as he always does. And his notes are the final words on, on our liner notes. Uh, it's, you know, it's impossible. It's so hard to, 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 uh, to, 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 to process this. Here's the guy that calls me and he goes, Pete Way is sick. You should call him. Pete Way's really sick. You should call him. Pete Way died. You know, this is the kind of thing that uh, does anybody even know what happened to Malcolm? Do, do, did he have a long term illness and, and no one discussed? Because I never heard anything. Do you know anything? No, I, I don't. I know. I would guess that his very closest friends uh, would know what happened, but it's certainly not something that's in the public domain. And I did see a publicist. Uh, comment that he missed an interview and he never missed an interview, a phoner. And um, so it was not something that people saw coming. I think it's, it's, it's safe to say. And just such an encyclopedic knowledge of um, the genre and such enthusiasm and, and long before you could look things up on Google, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't fake it. Um, um, and, and, you know, as someone that I admired from afar living in Australia and sending stories to Kerrang when I was a um, kid and um, and just to run into him a couple of times at the crowbar and for him to remember remember my name you know made my month made my year so um, I, I really do, I just thought it was important to mention him but I, I can see that it's you know it's um it's something that's um, upsetting to you so um, maybe we'll yeah I, I also want to add too that in 1986 when I ran the New York Marathon Malcolm came to New York and we trained together we ran together on the reservoir because he was a runner as well. Um, those are the kind of memories that stay with you. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a shock to everybody. You know, he was part of the mainstay of, of the whole British metal revival thing. And, and what happened was 
Twisted was um, adopted by the British press as, you know, or, or it was perfect timing for us to show up there when we did playing the way we did um, as aggressively as we did. And, and for those guys to uh, understand it and give us legitimacy where we had almost lost it back home. So um, it's a tough one. You know, I'm going to be in London next week. I'm going to be seeing some people and I'm sure that the topic of Mr. Dome will be coming up consistently. Yeah, I'm sure. To, for him and his family and, um, you know, rest in peace and all the other cliches that go with it, but he'll be seriously missed. We talked before we started recording um, um, about the fact, you, you know, you've been busy, you've been on this uh, book tour and um, sometimes when you're on a book tour, you, you get enough material to write another book. Um, must be some, uh, must have been some good experiences and just to have complete strangers send you an email and suddenly you're talking to them on Zoom. It's, a, it's not a normal thing, you know, how, how have you found it? Uh, it's, it's a lot of work, <laughs> but you know, it's like, uh, be careful what you wish for. You know, it, you know, it's, it's, it's so ironic. You know, you call somebody up, how you doing? Oh man, I'm crazed. I'm crazed. I'm crazed. You know, I'm crazed. Well, what happens when you're not crazed? You're bored to death and then you're afraid, then you have fear that you're not crazed. So which one is it? Mm. You want to not be crazed or you want to be crazed? So it's overwhelming. It's ongoing. It's daily. It's hourly. And I'm promoting a book. And, you know, that's what you sign up for. So big deal. Listen, I'm not on a tour bus. I'm not driving 22 hours a day. I'm not um, on a plane. I'm in my office. Mm. You know, like it doesn't suck. You know, I mean, it really just doesn't suck. I'm in my office and, and I do these things. I meet a lot of people, hear a lot of comments. You know, what's interesting to me is one man's superstar is another man's, uh, you know, regular musician. Uh, when people say to me, oh, the legend, this, that, I go, really? To whom? I mean, I, I really don't even process that. I don't even know what that means because, you know, I've been living where I live all my life and nobody knows what I do. <laughs> An amazing and story that you've lived there your whole life. It's incredible. Yeah, and, and, and the <laughs> fact that really people don't is make, makes me very happy because the last thing I want to do is, is, uh, is live this thing. And, and my wife is very happy I wrote a book because she's so sick of hearing the stories. You know, as, as, as this just goes with somebody who's a personality. This is not unusual to me. But she says, you know, now we're at a dinner party. Someone starts asking me questions, which they inevitably do. She says, look, he's got a book, buy the book, here's his email, send him an email, let's talk about anything, anything else, except Twisted Sister, please. Before we um, had the first song, JJ, I just wondered, did you ever get to a point in your life where you didn't want to be JJ French anymore, that you, were, you realized you were known for this thing and you wanted to just escape it, you know, or was it always something that you felt you had to make the most of and that you were privileged to, to have? I think JJ French is a character. Mm. And I'm not that character. Uh, you know, um, I'm John and I'm not that to anybody. Anyone who knows me on a daily basis, uh, no. So um, do I accept it as a character? Yeah. You know, the same way maybe Alice Cooper accepts it or D. I don't know. I don't know what anybody else does in terms of how they process fame or success. Um, I do value my anonymity a lot. I think that that's, I think stardom is way overrated. Uh, personally, I, I, I don't need to be recognized. I don't want to be. Um, you know, I think it was David Bowie, to paraphrase, and I paraphrase David Bowie and, and the actor Tony Danza, celebrity has no value except to get a good restaurant reservation 
and be able to get to a hospital or get a good doctor if you're sick. That's about the, to me, that's about the value of celebrity. Let's have a song. What song can we start with for the people listening? Oh, I guess you start with Shoot Him Down.
everybody. It's JJ French from Twisted Sister, and you are listening to White Lion Fever. Welcome back to White Lion Fever. For those listening, for those watching, particularly those who've got up in the middle of the night in Australia to watch, um, we've got a question from someone who sat up watching. Um, thank you for sitting up. Um, and we're talking to Jizzy Pearl about uh, the new song, uh, Wanna Be Somebody. And, um, you know, um, I was watching uh, Jason Green podcast earlier, you know, um, and I was uh, doing the normal Google uh, research. And I remember when I actually, um, about 10 years ago, when, when I came um, uh, to the casino and did an interview for Classic Rock with you, you were talking about um, mooching and you'd rather drive a cab than get on Kickstarter and stuff like that. And then I, I saw some stuff about um, um, streaming concerts and saying that it could be like taking the value out of, well, you know. You know, I, I probably, that's the problem with the internet is, <laughs> is if, you're, if you're a little salty on any particular day, you know, it lives on forever and ever. You know, I kind of took some heat for that remark. It's only because when, when the lockdown happened, and everyone started to play in their living room, you know, like in front of the computer. I thought, okay, you know, it's, it, I, I get it. You know what I mean? You're, you're still, you're still giving music and your fans dig it and stuff like that. But I just thought it gets into the realm of, of vaudeville when you start doing it on a twice weekly basis. Mm. You know what I mean? Then it doesn't, then it looks more like you're, you know, panhandling, mm-hmm. you know, to me. Mm-hmm. You know, but I understand virtual concerts, but I don't get rocked by them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when I saw some bands play live on a virtual concert, I said, well, where's the audience? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It would almost be like you'd have to insert a laugh track if it was a comedian, like a comedy show, mm-hmm. you know. So it just it's missing something, I guess, is what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah. You're missing that that live interactive experience. And has it, do you think it's taken some value out of now that we are back at live shows that people are, have got lazier or, or not? I just, the thing is, and this is truth, that people expect their, and I'll, I won't say rock stars, people expect their musicians that they're fans of to look the same as they did in 1990 and to sing the songs the same as they did in 1990 or whenever, you know? Mm-hmm. And so time munches on for some of these people, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? You know, they didn't flatten the curve like they were supposed to. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just think it's incumbent with YouTube being such a cruel, unforgiving mistress <laughs> that you got to be as good as you can be. And mm-hmm. I, I, um, I just think it's important for all musicians to take that to heart and, and don't, and don't phone it in. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's yeah. what I think. You know, cause this is almost like the quiet ride show. Cause we had Alex Crossy on a couple of uh, weeks ago and he, and he made the point cause we're talking about changing names and he works in the industry and, and, and he, you know, he made the point, which he's made several times and others have made that if you're not on uh, blabbermouth, you don't know or care who, you know, is in a band. The lineup is not as important as it is to people who, you know, who, who read Blabbermouth. And I just, I just wonder, like... Um, I don't even think it's really important to them. I just think yeah. that it's, it's a way, it's a fun thing to, to talk down on people. Yeah, yeah, some, yeah. People, some people get their kicks giving other people licks. 
You yeah. know what I mean? I just think that's what it is. I don't think really people care, you know, particularly, you know, and, and I just think it's, it's fun to, to, to knock people down a peg. Yeah. Yeah. But there must be, you, you, you surely there's a, there's a graph you could draw from if, you know, if Skid Row get Sebastian Bach back, they're going to get this amount of money down to people don't know or care. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, well, that's, you know, I mean, that's never going to happen. I, it's never ever Mm going to happen. And you know how fucked it must be for Rachel and snake to have to do every single interview. And you know, that question's coming. Mm -hmm. You just, you know, and they, they know that, you know, that I know that they know (laughs) that it's coming and they just don't want to, you know, nothing personal, but like, why would I want to play with the old guys and love hate? I mean, you know what I mean? It's it's some, I just don't like some of the people in the band and, Mm -hmm. and, and, and I don't want to do it. And I'm of an age where I can just kind of choose not to, you know, we never sold millions of records. So who cares? Yeah, 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 exactly. But it is, it is different depending on who you are a little bit as to whether it is a factor. You know what I mean? On the, on the food chain. I got it. I didn't know. I just said, it just depends who you are, what your identity was and what people like, what people recognize and what was on the album cover at the time and, and all that sort of Well, stuff. yeah. I mean, people want, look, people want what they want. I got it. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my, the Quiet Riot band is, is we just got Rudy Sarzo back. Yeah. And that's a very big, you know, shot in the arm for the mm-hmm. band because mm-hmm. obviously we lost Frankie, mm-hmm. you know, last year. And so getting, Rudy back, the guy, the guy that was in all the videos, the guy that was at the, uh, you know, us festival, it's a big shot in the arm for us. So, uh, yeah, I get what you're saying, but you know, I would like to see Pink Floyd reunite, but they're never gonna. Yeah. 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 How did the Rudy Sazo return play out? You know, how, how did it happen? Um, well, he and Frankie had been friends for 50 years. I mean, they, they played in bands when they were in high school, mm. you know, so they've known each other forever and ever. And, um, and I think once the furor died down with Frankie dying and, and the tributes and, and stuff, and then it was sort of understood that Quiet Riot wanted to carry on. I think Rudy, once all the dust had settled, thought, well, you know what? I, I think I want to come back. Mm. You know what I mean? So it, it was initiated through him and through the management and stuff like that. And so, you know, it's just, he was, he's in the guess who, you know, he, he's in that band, the guess who. So they have to play out their contractual commitment and then he's going to start playing with us. Yeah. What do you see the sort of um, the, 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 the future for, for quiet ride as far as, I don't know, like, um, obviously there's a lot of affection in the marketplace towards the band and stuff. So do you see, do you see things taking quite an upswing or what's the vibe like? You know, to me, things taking an upswing is me being able to work Mm. and not get locked down. That to me is success. You know, I've been touring this whole summer and with Rudy, obviously interest has peaked and um, we're going to do a new record. And, you know, I, I mean, all of the bands in my sort of genre 
aren't going to break the sound barrier. You know what I mean? We're not going to run a three minute mile. Mm. You know what I mean? It's just, we, the fans come to see the music and they, and there's a legacy and um, they appreciate us and we preach appreciate them. And that's kind of as good as it gets. Yeah. Yeah. Let's have another song. Gigi, what can we play now? Why don't you play want to be somebody? Why, why wouldn't we? This is Jizzy Pearl here, hanging with Steve, and you're listening to White Line Fever. Welcome back. And our next guest, we've been around long enough now to have repeat guests. And this man is a repeat guest. From the choir boys, Ian Hume. Hey, Ian, how are you, mate? Steve, very good. Good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you. Uh, We are at opposite ends of the earth and opposite ends of our day. Um, So I'm a bit bleary-eyed and 
I don't know. You've probably got a few hours left in here because you're, you're a night owl. But um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm actually up at about five o'clock in the morning, four or five o'clock in the morning. That's not very anyway, rock and roll. I know. It's, it, it's not, is it? <laughs> in fact, what I'm doing, I'm getting up. I've had complaints. There's someone playing drums in the apartment block at, at five o'clock in the morning. Who the fuck is that? <laughs> well, you're still like, annoying well, the I neighbors. don't know who it is. <laughs> you're still annoying the neighbours. Is that is that is that you? Um, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. I'm still annoying neighbours. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter what end of the day. Maybe that's what aging does. You just annoy the neighbours at the start of the day instead of <laughs> the end of the day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Choir Boy's got a new album out. Um, feels good. Uh, it's got a new song on it. Uh, reworkings of uh, some of the um, classics. Um, and it seems to be, maybe it's just a coincidence, but it seems to be a thing in Australia now with the Tats did it last year, the Jets have just done it as well. Um, Why does it it happen? It's obviously popular. The Jets album debuted number one on one of the charts, number four on another chart. Um, What's the story behind the album? Uh, It's, well, I was going to say Tats and Jets and we all got together about 18 months ago and said, what are we all going to do? No, we didn't do that. Um, (laughs) It it was just an, it was an accident that just kind of snowballed. Um, We did a, we did a live stream. We did, we've done a couple of live streams, but we did a live stream and then we recorded it, pulled up the audio and I pulled up the audio and went, oh, this sounds pretty cool. And then, you know, we just, I I kind of, you know, um, uh, pulled it together. We mixed a track, released and went, oh, that's kind of cool. And then it was just like, well, we've got more songs. Let's see what the other ones do. And um, we ended up, um, I I think, eight of the tracks from that live stream we we released and then we found this uh, old song that we'd forgotten about and we re-recorded it brand new with all new parts and uh, released, put that on the album as well. Right, yeah. And, mate, um, what, I mean, were the, 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 the songs that were in the live stream, were they deliberately reworked in any way or were they just attempts to sort of faithfully perform those songs? Do you know what I mean? Did you, did you go in to rework songs and make them deliberately no. sound different? No. Okay. No, we didn't, but it, and subsequently we found out things like um, we did Rendezvous and yeah. then uh, I didn't realise, but someone pointed out, you know, the recorded version on, on Midnight Sun of Rendezvous is a lot faster than the live version you did. And I went, oh, is it? And, <laughs> and I had a listen. I went, yeah, it's, it's they're different tempos, you know. So, yeah, there's a, a couple of weird things about it, I suppose, um, that it's, it's just in time. It's morphed that way. We, you know, sort of played it differently or, or inadvertently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a is it? I've listened to it a couple of times. Is there a um, there's a there's a breakdown during Run to Paradise that's kind of oh, yeah. funky and stuff too. What was the origins of, of that? Because you played with that song a lot over the years, haven't you? To try to make it sort of sound. I know current's probably the wrong word, but to make it sound interesting and and different. You know, it's been turned into a dance song, and it's been. T- it's been played with a bit over the years, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the dance version was with Nick Skitz and, and he did that a long time ago and, and that was just one of those things. But the, the reason it's got that middle eight in it with the, the um, rewritten or, you know, like mm. a, a different piece of music in it is we did it live and when we do it live, 
Mark does this thing where we, we break down and he does a little bit of a chat and a rave and, and, and that whole thing. And the recorded version, just when you listen to it like that, you go, well, it, it's boring. <laughs> it's a minute almost of dead air, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I thought, oh, you know, like my chance to, you know, like um, uh, my chance to shine. <laughs> and um, I, I, I just started frigging around with it and then um, uh, put in, you know, put a couple of string things in and then I, a guy I hadn't seen in 20 years, Paris McLeod, came into the equation, he, he just happened to contact me, what are you guys doing, I, you know, do you need anything mastered? And I, well, we're working on an album and, yes, we would like something mastered. And he came in and he had a listen and he said, oh, you know, we could do this to it and that. So he kind of, what I did, he kind of polished it a little bit, you know, which was yeah. really nice of him to do that. Yeah. Well, you know, I didn't, I didn't say anything to you at all about the format for this before we started recording. Um, so um, I apologise for that, but there is, for the podcast section we kind of split up the audio and 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 play a song every every five minutes and um i guess yeah. we, we probably should play that version of under paradise since we've been talking about it for the last three or four minutes but can you before we play the song i mean um i think i've asked you this before but what is your relationship with the song like i mean is it is it is it is it a, is it a love affair 24 hour a day love affair with run to paradise or do you do you sometimes get sick of playing it and hearing it and and has your relationship with the song um, changed over the over the years, you know. Oh, it probably has changed a, a little bit, you know. Like these days, when we play it, it it's it's not like a labour to do because people love it so much, and it's a, it's like a uh, it's two way. So people are loving it, and we're loving playing it. So it, it's always a a pleasure to play, and it's I, I suppose done a lot of good for us. So yeah, I don't. I don't have a, a problem playing it or with with that song. Um, just with a minute of dead air in the middle, I thought that. that <laughs> Actually, you know what? I got one more question, follow up question before we play the song because I recently yeah. was lucky enough last weekend, first time got on a plane since um, um, since COVID happened. I went to Prague and I went to a few of the um, um, places where In Excess shot those three videos in 1987. You know, Never Tear Us Apart, Guns in the Sky, oh, New Sensation. Yeah. And, and I was thinking, like, walking on that island last Sunday, um, that when people hear Never, Never Tear Us Apart, they think of that scene of Michael with his hands in his pockets walking, you know, with this Prague in the background. And I wonder what did Michael think of when, when he played Never Tear Us Apart? Did he think of a girl? Did he think of a place? Did he think of, 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 of actually writing it, a bit of paper? Did he think of being in a rehearsal room? So I kind of wonder when you... When you hear Run to Paradise, you know, like, and you close your eyes, what do you see? Do you see the early days? Do you see it being written? Do you see it being performed for the first time? Do you see yourself hearing it on a radio for the yeah. first time? Well, what, what do you see, you know? I don't know. I haven't really thought about it like that. But when you mention it, there's certain things that spring to mind. I can remember us um, uh, sitting down and arranging the song in uh, Sound Level Studios in, um, where is it, in Ultimo? Yep. Um, and, and that's kind of where I suppose the song really came together. There, there, there was another period where there was a, a, you know, a chorus and a riff or something. We jammed it out. Um, that was somewhere in Queensland. But it, it, it really came together around about that time at, at Sound Level Studios in um, Ultimo. And um, 
that sort of springs to mind. Um, yeah, I can remember hearing it on radio and, and that, that whole thing was, oh, it's getting some airplay. How wonderful. How, yeah, 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 how yeah. cool, you know. And got a lot more would, after that. Got a lot more. <laughs> I know. And who would have thought, you know, like I'm, I'm you know, like I'm on Spotify today and I was having a look at Susanna, um, what's her name, Susanna Hoffs and, and um, uh, Dave Stewart and their stuff and, and then, uh, you know, the Quiet Boys stuff came up. Oh, let me have a look at the hits on that. I'm looking at it like. 40 million plays or something for, you know, one version of Run to Paradise and, you know, kind of, wow, that's just, like, phenomenal. Okay, let's hear the song. Let's hear the latest recording so. of the song. Just for fun But you run to paradise Jenny I'll meet you at the grocery store You don't need a friend when you can score But you run to paradise
guys, and you're listening to White Line Fever with Steve Mascourt. Okay, everybody, welcome back to White Line Fever, and if you're watching, thanks for not turning off, I guess. Uh, it's the second part of our interview uh, with John Karabi. John, um, you mentioned about everyone play, um, now, obviously, they don't buy physical records, and they don't do records, and in another interview, you mentioned Kiss and Aerosmith, uh, probably never going to do another record, but Bruce Kulik did come to you and suggest a new union uh, record. Is, did you have to kind of have this conversation with him about that's not the era we're in anymore, Bruce, or did it not come down to, to that? No, you know, the thing of it is with union, a lot of people have asked me about that lately. Mm. Uh, we never really split up. We were just, you know, we were trying to carve our little niche out of the music industry. and. Bruce got offered, you know, if I can be blunt, a better paying gig with Grand Funk Railroad. Um, so he got that. I got offered a better paying gig with Rat. And James and Brent got offered a better paying gig with uh, Vince Neil, oddly enough. So we never split up. We're all still great friends. And there was talk of us... Um, we started talking a couple years back where it was like, Hey, let's, you know, let's get together and maybe do some shows or let's do a record. And I, I was like, you know what? I don't really want to, I'm not against doing a couple of new songs, but I don't really see the point in trying to, get money from a record label and spending, you know, a month or whatever, trying to write songs and put them out there when we don't actually know what the climate is on union, on union. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Let's go do the shows. And if we have a great turnout, then I'd be okay with releasing a couple of songs and, and, and do it the way that I'm doing it now. Um, I just think that things have changed so much that this is why Gene Simmons was made that comment a couple of years ago, like, you know, rock is dead. And it, it's, it's not so much about the fans because the fans are going to the shows. It's just the method of how they acquire their new music. Mm. Uh, that's drastically changed. There's no radio. There's no MTV. There's really, like I said earlier, the Virgin Records and the Tower Records and, and all, all the mom and pop record stores are few and far between or gone. So now it's about streaming and it's about downloads. Mm. So we're all, you know, all us old guys are figuring it out as we go. You know what I mean? You know, you're doing a lot of these um, Zoom interviews at the moment. It's hard to come up with questions yet and not being asked by everybody else. But one thing I, I think everyone asks you about this sort of Motley Crue thing. I know you've got a book uh, coming up with a fantastic uh, title, uh, Horseshoes and Hand Grenades, which was inspired uh, by your dad. But everyone asks you about the inner workings of Motley Crue. And I don't really know much about the inner workings of the Dead Daisies. You know, like it seems, it seems to me like it's kind of a rock and roll startup with, you know, a guy who's got resources and maybe it's just starting to break even, you know, as a rock and roll startup. I don't know. But what is that? What I mean, how does a Dead Daisies work? How would you explain it? How do you explain it to your friends when they ask you, what is this band that you were in? You know, it might be in again. Um, 
it, honestly, it was a great band. You know, I, I have to give credit where credit is due. You know, David Lowy was always, a, and you're obviously being from Australia, you're very familiar with David Lowy's history. And he's always been uh, kind of a closet guitar player. He's an incredibly smart businessman. And um, he had done a few bands in Australia and decided that he was going to uh, assemble, you know, a great band on paper. So, you know, initially it was John Stevens and Dizzy Reed and Richard Fortas and Brian Tishy and Marco Mendoza. And they went out and they made some noise. You know what I mean? Um, for a parent, obviously, again, I'm not, I don't have to fill you in with uh, uh, John, who I adore. I think John's vocals are insane. John Stevens. Um, but he had some issues back in uh, 2014, 15 uh, that he had to take care of. And so they asked me to join. And, and when I got in there, I was like, wow, you know, this is a great band. And we did a record and it just started blowing up. It just, you know, it was crazy. Um, I think the smart thing that David does is he assembled a team of people that are masters of social media marketing. And they are on there all the time. And it was funny, even when I left the band and, and I started doing my own thing, even my wife was like, I know you're not a big social media guy, but you really need to take a look at the playbook that the Dead Daisies are using and somehow figure out how to incorporate that into John Karabi's world. And I have to admit, like, I'm not... I'm not the kind of guy that's like, I'm not, I, I, I can't, I think the last Instagram or Facebook live that I did was the day I was shooting the video for uh, Cassibella. Mm. Um, and, and it, and it's weird because I just don't think about things like, sorry, plane. Uh, right. I, I just don't think about things in the context that David's team does. Like I, I sit in my recording studio while I'm piecing together a song and I'll get all done and I'll be shutting it down. And my wife will come into the room and she'll hear the song and she's like, wow, what a great song. Did you film any of it to put on online? And I'm like, uh, no, actually I didn't. She's like, ah, dude, that's what you, you know, people want to see that stuff. Mm. And, but think of like, I, I, I don't know. I have to, I have to go back and I have to reread the Dead Daisies playbook because I, I, I tend to think of myself as not really <laughs> that interesting. Do you know what I mean? Like, are the fans really, are the fans really going to give a, a shit about what I'm doing? You know what I mean? But apparently they do. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's funny. So, but that, that's why they're so successful because David assembled a nice team of people that are just on their filming. They're on all the different social media sites. You know, they're, they're, they're just 
awesome at it. Two things. Um, what, do you, what, how, what do you think success is for, for them? I know I'm talking about dead daisies the way people normally hit you about Motley Crue, but what do you think... Um, what do, you, what do you think success is for the dead daisies? You know, really, is it is it is it selling records? Is it is it packing venues? And obviously, they started from a low base, and no one knew who they were. And secondly, and this is another thing the other interviewers aren't asking you about, but I will about about um, doing a duet with Jimmy Barnes. You know, I'm really interested to hear about that experience. Well, the the you know, success is in the eyes of the beholder. Um, David still has his. You know, I, I got to I got to tell you this, like it, it used to irritate me that people would indirectly slag the daisies on the fact that it was like, you know, I'd see comments like, oh, it's just some billionaire's hobby or, just, you know, he doesn't give, you know what I mean? And. I look at it like David still has the time to do all the business things that he needs to do, but he gets to go into the studio and write and contribute, which he does. I can tell you right now, the song long way to go. That was David Lowy's riff. Like he, he came in with this riff and it was like, and it's a great song. So he's, he's a contributor. He's not buying his way. He's not paying people to write good songs for him. He's contributing. He's involved. He, he uh, you know, so success to him is being able to walk on stage as we did uh, at a place like the Polish Woodstock Festival in front of 200,000 people and play all of our music with a 50 piece orchestra and walk off stage knowing that that two hours we gave the audience was awesome. So he, he's one of these incredibly brilliant people that knows how he can compartmentalize everything. It's like, I've never seen anybody work as hard as he does. Uh, like he, we would literally do a show, go back to the hotel. And as we were walking into the hotel, he would say, Hey, uh, crab, do you want to go get a cocktail? Okay, sure. We'd go to the bar and I'd have a couple of whiskeys. He'd have his, you know, vodka or martini or whatever. And then he would go upstairs and literally go to sleep for maybe two hours. And then he'd be up at five or six o'clock in the morning calling Japan and calling Israel and calling, you know, Australia from wherever and handling his business, then go back to sleep, sleep for a couple more hours. And then, and then we were off all day, like all day doing interviews and press and meet and greets and all this stuff, do the show, rinse and repeat every day. So he's able to compartmentalize the business part and he still gets to live his dream of walking on stage and playing music that he had a hand in writing mm. and, and, and rock out. I'm like, how awesome is that? <laughs> that, that 
pretty awesome because most musicians wish that they had some sort of business savvy to be able to make money on the side from the real gig. Mm. And, and most business people look at musicians and go, God, I would live nothing. I would love nothing more than to be able to go out and party with a bunch of rock stars and just live that gypsy bohemian lifestyle. He's able to do it all. So I think he's brilliant. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sorry. The really long answer. That's 10 minutes of your life. You're never getting back. <laughs> it, it, was a great, it was a great answer. It was a great answer. And what's more, I think a lot of, I, I sort of came to the realization at one point that a lot of the people criticizing him would do exactly the same thing if given the opportunity. So exactly. um, <laughs> um, it, it's like, if you could go to work and do whatever you do. And, and if you wanted to be, you know, you wanted to be on a, uh, you know, uh, World Cup, you know, soccer team or rugby team, or you wanted to be a race car driver. But if you could go to work and do your job and then do that and also be successful at that, who wouldn't want to do that? You know what I mean? And and he gets to, and and he gets to live what I really feel is kind of the perfect life. He's got both, and he's able to compartmentalize everything and be really good at both things. So that that's I got to take my hats off to a guy like that. Yeah, um, I might lead you uh, with the next song because I also asked you about "Empty Heart" with Jimmy Barnes. Um, can you talk a little bit about recording that and about the song and about Jimmy, and then maybe we'll listen to the song if you're listening on the podcast. Yeah, it was you know that that came about because when we went to um, we recorded the first record I did with the guys in Sydney, um, and. Unfortunately, for some weird reason, I don't recall why, but Brian Tishy, who was our drummer at the time, was not able to make the recording uh, sessions. Sorry, I apologize about the planes. Um, but so uh, David knew Jimmy and... Uh, I guess we had Jackie Barnes. He made a phone call and we had Jackie Barnes play on the Revolution record. At which point Jimmy was in another studio down the hall and he would just pop in and you know, Jimmy, I mean, he's full of energy and very jovial and, 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 and just fun, a funny guy. So he would come in and, and, you know, he would, he would harass Jackie and then us and then, but he was kind of listening to where we were going with our music. And uh, he came into the studio one day and he goes, Hey, I got a couple tracks here that I wrote that um, I'd love for you guys to check out. And we listened to both tracks and everybody just across the board said, empty heart. It's such a great song. And then, um, David actually asked Jimmy if he would want to do a duet with me. And, and I got to be honest with you, like at that point, I didn't really know much about Jimmy Barnes. Like I, I was like, I, oh, you know, I, I, I wasn't familiar with cold chisel or any of that stuff. And then he came into the studio, we laid the track down and Jimmy started singing and I was like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> this guy, 
this guy's insane singer. So he sang the song all the way through. And then I sang the song all the way through. And we just took the best. Like he did the first verse. I did the second verse. We did the choruses together. And then at the end, we just kind of traded off and on. But what a voice. Like, and then it was funny. I came home to Nashville. And uh, I was playing some of my friends, some of the tracks. And I was surprised. I was like, I, I felt like I'm the dumbass because I came home and I said, oh, yeah, we did this song with a guy from Australia named Jimmy Barnes. And all my Nashville friends are like, oh, fuck, are you kidding me? Jimmy Barnes, you sang a song with Jimmy Barnes. And I'm like, yeah. Do you know him? Yeah, I love Cold Chisel. I love this. I love that. I like, you know, so, I, you know, I get to wear the dunce cap for that one because I had no idea who Jimmy was. But what a great song. We we actually uh, recorded it together. It was a blast hanging out with him. Um, actually, I just wrote to Jackie. It was his anniversary the other day. So I just wrote to him. So we've, we've managed to stay in touch and what a bloke. I mean, that guy can sing the phone book and it would be awesome. You yeah, know what I mean? Of course, Jackie was on the Monsters of Rock cruise, wasn't he too, with the tats? So let's hear the song. If you're, um, if you're listening to the podcast, let's hear the song. Oh, my God. 
Hey guys, this is John Karabi, and you are listening to White Line Fever. Turn it up. Well, welcome back. I've got very used to saying that in recent days and weeks. Uh, I want to welcome uh, an old friend. Actually, I think the podcast started uh, about um, probably about 10 audio recorders ago, lost or broken, uh, and also 10 years ago. Uh, and this fellow was on one of the very first episodes um, from the Screaming Jets, Dave Gleason. Hey, Dave, how are you, mate? Steve, I'm great, mate. Great to be talking to you. It's been too long. It has. It has quite a bit of distance between us, but um, it wouldn't matter because uh, for a while there we weren't allowed to go outside anyway, so we could be, <laughs> we'd be a kilometre away and we'd still be talking this way. But thankfully things are on the improve. Um, we're here to talk about All For One, the 30th anniversary re-recording um, from you know, the Jets um, sort of to use a wanky Kerrang word from uh, 30 years ago, seminal record. Seminal, um, I love it. It's got semen <laughs> in it. Be careful not to. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's the Dave Gleason from 30 years ago. Um, <laughs> um, and and it's, it's gone in number one vinyl and number four all up on the, on the charts in Australia. These re-recorded records, normally bands do them for legal reasons, you know what I mean? Because they don't own their catalogue and they might want to sell a song for you know, endorsements or they, you know, they want to get some money from their own work. Um, but they're not meant to be hits. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> um, have you been stunned by, by the response, you know? Yeah, look, it was uh, it was a lot of hard work um, from from the team behind the scenes, um, but um, you know, to, to firstly get the album done in isolation, uh, which was a, a weird process in the first place. But to, for all the steps that it went through to it finally, as you say, I, I know uh, Def Leppard have, have re-recorded a bunch of their stuff because they didn't own masters. Tay Tay's done it. <laughs> Tay Tay's done it. Everyone should be doing it. Um, um, but yeah, to, for, to get the reaction and get all the fans back on board was uh, was unreal. Couldn't believe it. Yeah, exactly. Now, well, do you think it was the Jets Army, or do you think you've got a few sort of casual people who've who've gone, oh, I'll grab one of these? You know what I mean? Like, what do you think? Well, I think there's a, a, a new legion of vinyl collectors out there. So there was uh, a bit of a limited edition run that I reckon people might have got their hands on. But we do have real loyal fans and they would have brought their kids up um, loving the Jets and, and I know that from countless people at gigs around the place. Most of the time if a, a pretty 20-something year old girl comes up and says, can I get your autograph? I go, yeah, what's your name? She goes, not for me, it's for me, Dad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good to know that their parents are passing on the uh, on the good times. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, do you... I mean, the 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 Tats re did some re-recordings last year. Choir Boys did it this year. The Angels put it the, that wireless uh, thing. Um, so, it, it, do you get a uh, when you announce you're doing it? Do you get kind of a pushback from fans who are like, "Why do you want to record it again? You can't improve on the original." Um, do you bother arguing with them? <laughs> you know, what's your response? Uh, look, we we obviously fans that hold those things very special. I hold albums very special. If, if Gunners came out tomorrow and said they're re-recording Appetite for Destruction, I'd be like, what? What are you doing? It's a perfect album. But um, uh, for us, it was uh, the, the, the fact that we are in, in not able to get into a studio together and jam out new stuff. Um, we put together a, a, a 
an EP last year that was going to get released and it didn't because it was just it's really hard to kind of release stuff knowing you're not going out on the road. So then it's just becoming an exercise in futility. It's going to cost you money and it's great for the fans. Uh, however, we were all we were thinking about doing the all for one re-recording and it just seemed like a perfect opportunity to to do something like that because we all know the songs and we've all played them a thousand times and we, you know, so uh, along with the fact that there was kind of a, a, you know, the new lineup, there was also the fact that the songs had given, been given more room to live and grow. And over the 30 year period, there's new lead breaks and there's different parts in songs that have grown totally out of the live sphere, you know? So it was, uh, yeah, there was, there's, you're always going to get pushback. And as you actually mentioned, I don't get involved. I, I, I try to, um, treat the internet like uh, David Lee Roth said. Um, I always get two chicks. You see, in case there's any conversation, I don't have to get involved. <laughs> <laughs> I look at the internet like that. I don't get involved with the conversation. <laughs> you know, there's a kind of irony in the title. Uh, it's all for one, and and um, and obviously you mentioned there's been uh, you know lineup changes. So do do you, I mean do, do you do you dive back into life then when you're re-recording these songs and listening to them back and think about, you know, like you listen to Shine On and you imagine, you know, what it was like to move from Newey down to the cross and live in the same apartment or house or whatever, you know, like, I mean, do you dive back into that and maybe revisit some of the issues as well that you had with the other guys or do you, do you try to just live in, in the moment when, when you listen to it or, or play or, or re-record the songs? Well, with Shine On, um, the thing about Shine On, <coughs> pardon me, oh, that was Paul's life story, not the Jets' life story. Mm-hmm. He was uh, we're between bands. We'd all kind of, around 88, we'd, we'd all finished up with our kind of cover bands and we're looking for, to do something more serious. And Paul was working with a blues band out of Canberra called Steve Grieve and the Mourners. So he was getting on a train on a Thursday and, going down there and spending four or five days and writing songs as he, as he still does to this day prolifically. Um, and that was, so that was his story. And then over the years, I hijacked it and I made up a story about it being the Jets. And, and so as we were re-recording it, I thought this, that Paulie actually prophetically wrote the story of the Jets without kind of, you know, just, just that story of, of heading out and, and always being to see the light shining through. Sometimes it's a train at the end of the tunnel, but uh, you know, it, it, it kind of that was a, that was one in particular that I thought back. I remember we recorded it uh, with Steve James the first time, just after we'd won the uh, Triple J Battle of the Bands, and um, and that was that's the only song that survived uh, from uh, from the original re- the initial recording session. You've you've beautifully introduced Shine On. So for the listeners, we might love it. Yeah, we'll listen to the re-recorded version of Shine On.
behind you I got miles and miles of miles to go It's another lonely night I see that tunnel of ahead is dark Opens up and swallows me whole Can't see the light at the other end now Sometimes it's a gotta show
I'm Dave Gleeson. I'm here with Steve Mascord, and this is White Line Fever. Get some. Welcome back. And um, this fellow, as he had a look in the email trail, he would see I've been trying to crack it for a chat with him for about nine, eight or nine years. And then last night, he was ready, and I wasn't. Um, but he's finally here from Enough's Enough. Chip's Enough. How are you, Chip? Good afternoon. Good evening. Good <laughs> 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 so if you're in Australia, it's about 4 a.m. or something. So uh, thanks for getting up and, uh, and, and watching. And thanks for joining. Well, right. You're welcome, my friend. Uh, I love Australia. I love your wine. I love your women. I love your music. I love shopping out there. There's nothing I don't... Last time I was in Australia was in uh, 2020 in, in March with the great Kip Winger playing all over the place. It was absolutely fabulous. As a matter of fact, we were following around uh, Blackie and uh, the Pixies, they were on tour as well at the same time. So uh, great moments in, in, their, in your lovely country, beautiful people out there. And uh, one thing you guys hate we as well is great hard rock heavy metal. Exactly, exactly. And I'm a bit, that's embarrassing. You've actually been in Australia more recently uh, than, than me. Um, we're here to talk about Hard Rock Nights, um, which, is, uh, which is the new album full of Beatles and Beatles-associated uh, covers. And um, I, the one thing listening to it, um, Chip, is that how, when a song had already been done as a hard rock version, did you try to keep that version out of your mind? And how hard was it not to listen to a bit, you had a bit of Guns N' Roses come into your thinking when you're recording, you know? No, it wasn't a challenge at all. Well, the challenging part is any time playing Beatles songs and singing those parts. We're talking about one of the greatest bands, if not the greatest band ever, songwriters singers, players, uh, just fabulous cats that uh, written songs that are timeless. Here we are talking about them 60 years later. Uh, you can't say enough about the Beatles, how great they were. Paul McCartney invited my job as well. I've said it a million times. Uh, to do, go in the studio and do these songs, obviously there's a, there's a challenge there because we're all recording. It's analog. We're going to tape. We want great performances. But more than anything, we just wanted to nail down these songs as well as we could and, and try to make them sound like they're enough enough songs, even though they're not. Uh, we're paying homage. It's, it's not a tribute record. It's a reinterpretation of the Beatles songs through, through Mesa Boogie and Marshall amplifiers and big drums and SVT amplifiers. That's exactly what it is. Imagine what the Beatles are playing today through that kind of equipment. They'd fucking be fantastic what they'd bring to the party. The songs were already timeless as it is. But to go into a, a take pop songs and turn it into a hard rock record, uh, that's certainly something that tripped my trigger. Hey, um, it's very interesting uh, and sort of reassuring in a way that uh, bands from the 60s can still have little sort of public feuds. And we saw uh, Roger Daltrey um, say he thought that um, the Stones were a, 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 a pub band. And last year, uh, Paul McCartney um, said he thought the, the Stones were a bit of a blues cover, a cover band. But... Most of your contemporaries would have been more Stones than Beatles influenced. You know, LA Guns, they're more, more a Stonesy band than a Beatles band. So a really basic question, why the Beatles? Why, why, why did you gravitate that way? Well, first of all, uh, Daltrey sounds a little bit cantankerous. Uh, and as far as McCartney goes, well, he was just telling the truth because Stones are essentially a blues band. Uh, and there's, don't think there's not competition there, folks. They both love each other. And, in a lot of ways, they admired each other's uh, 
surroundings as far as uh, the song in their catalog. But at the end of it, we've lost we've lost Chip for a little while. I don't know whether we should uh, continue. Uh, I'm sorry, you got me now. Yeah, I got you. I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, as I was saying before, uh, the Stones and, and, the, and the Who have both pillaged off the Beatles. Uh, what made me do a Beatles record is that's one of our biggest influences. I always loved their songs, and we picked stuff from 1967 and above where the Beatles were experimenting uh, with drugs in, in the studio, recording songs that weren't necessarily to be played on the radio. They are just tripping their own trigger. I think at the end of the day, we made a hard, good hard rock record of essentially – 10 Beatles songs that you can hear in concert live every single night. And some of them will bring you back a memory and other ones will catch your attention because you might not know, the new generation might not know about them. Uh, so we're here to, to put them out there, to play them in its entirety and to maybe perhaps take the show on the road and go out and play these songs live as well. A lot of the fans out there will think there are songs. It's funny. Uh, but the diehard Beatles fans, I think, will, will be respectful to what we've done here. Yeah, okay. Um, maybe we can uh, listen to a song uh, now for, if, if, for the people who are on the podcast. What song can we play? Maybe one off this, uh, this record, Chip? Uh, the first song that's out as a single that Frontiers has released is called Jet. It's all Paul McCartney, Linda McCartney cover. It was a smash hit back then, and it certainly is today.
listening to White Line Fever with my favorite host, Steve. Welcome back. And uh, as has been the case uh, somewhat uh, frequently of late, we've got a return guest, a fellow who's been on the show before because we've been around for 10 years now. So uh, from Melbourne town, Rusty Brown from Electric Mary. Hello, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm cold, but I'm good. Yeah, well, that's funny that we're both experiencing similar weather on opposite sides of the world. But, uh, uh, mate, um, a change as well. I've, I've cracked the sniffles. The, uh, the old hay fever's kicked in for some reason. I've got the itchy eyes. So I haven't been on drugs, kids. It's <laughs> actually itchy eyes. And whatever I've got, he can't catch it because we're on Zoom. But, uh, Rusty, the reason I wanted to speak to you was, um, obviously, you've got a new song out, King of Rock and Roll, and yep. you tell me that you've been in the studio, and that's why you've been very busy. Um, so I, it's just time for a catch-up, I think, to tell uh, the viewers and listeners uh, what Electric Mary's been up to. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about the song. What, what, what are, where are you up to at the moment? Uh, we, we've just mixed a new song on Monday, and... We're probably about 90% there, just going to, you know, I've sent it out to all the um, the people in the band and now we're waiting for them to come back with their little things they think should be changed or sounds they want done. And um, as Tom Petty liked to say, the democratic process starts. That's why he made a solo album, so he didn't have to ask anybody. Mate, <laughs> I watched that last night. That's the last <laughs> thing I watched on television. I watched it like... Uh... Uh, seven hours ago, uh, where, where you feel free. Great documentary on uh, on YouTube, isn't it? Um, what a yeah, massive! That's that's fantastic. I recommend everybody watch that. It doesn't cost anything, and it is fantastic. Um, so, um, is it one song at a time now, Rusty, for Electric Mary? Is that what you're doing? Uh, look, originally when um, I don't even know what dates they were now, but when COVID sort of hit here hard in Melbourne and we got locked down for I don't know what time. We had four songs done, which didn't include the King of Rock and Roll and didn't include this new one. Um, so we have kind of pushed them to the side, which is a shame because, as you know, we've only just been able to come back out and see each other as of last week. So um, when we leave a song that long, though, it probably means we're going to start again. Because you're not in that moment anymore. And I understand there's different people who have done it, you know, different ways along the way. And I'm sure we have too. But, but for me, um, you know, if we did something in March 2020, you know, there's no real reason to go back to it. We'd be better off starting again tomorrow and just doing the same song but with a new feel and, a, you know, you're in the moment now. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to go back to a moment, you know, when people go, oh, do you remember? Somebody said to me the other day, apparently you remember uh, things that you've done. What you remember is the last time you remember it. Yes, last time you thought of it. It's last time you thought of it. It's, okay. very, it's very rare and precious if you actually have an original memory from decades ago. If you, if you think of something that happened to you when you were a kid, and you, you haven't thought about it since then, that, that's something to grab hold of. You know what I mean? Because except you've got these super rememberer people who can remember everything they ever did. Can you imagine what it's like to be like that? Everything yeah. they ever did. I like to forget a few things I've done. <laughs> I, um, I, was talking, sorry. I was talking to someone last, 
oh, like a few weeks ago. Actually, it was uh, Warwick Kappa. You know Warwick Kappa? Yep. Yep. Of course yep. you do. You're on a podcast and, with uh, him, right? With pardon? You were on a podcast with him, weren't you? Or? Yeah, and I spoke about seeing ACDC at, at a ice skating rink. And then I said, I wonder if I did. I think I did, and I remember I did. Well, the next day when someone was listening to it, they called me and said, I took you there. You went. And I went, oh, that's so cool. So I did go. I, like I thought I went, but, you know, was I 16? Was I 14? Was I 18? You know, I say things about Electric Mary now and they're just not right. The, 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 the time frames aren't right. Mm. I'll say we did this in, you know, 2016, but it was What about my T-shirt, see? What year was that? Hard Rock Hell. <laughs> We've been there three times. Who was the headline? Oh, um, oh was, it, was it Sebastian Bach, maybe? Was it? Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's on the back I of I think we were in the small room then. The second two times we were in the main room, the last time we went was 2019, so I won't forget that. Hmm. That was with... Uh, uh, Reef, they were the main act featuring, um, is it not Roger Taylor? What's the guys in their band from? Um, uh, they've got they've got a new kind of guy who's yeah, who's quite well known. Uh, is it Roger Taylor? No, no, uh, Rufus, Rufus is in the darkness. Rufus Taylor's a drummer in the darkness now. No, 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 not him. No, so, uh, you know, and uh, what's their name? I can't even think of their name now. It's all the Taylors. John Taylor, Roger Taylor, the other Taylor. They're all with Simon Le Bon. I can't even think of that. Duran Duran. Duran Duran. So oh, their guitarist, is yeah. it not Roger Taylor? No, it's Andy Taylor. Yep. Andy Taylor. So when we played with Reef at Hard Rock Hell, it was Reef featuring Andy Taylor. I have a feeling he might be their producer, but he plays in the band. The um, current members are Gary Stringer, Jesse Wood, and Jack Besant. So he must be in and out of yeah. of Reef. He's not listed on, on Wikipedia. But uh, um, is there an imperative to actually do uh, an album, Rusty? Is that that is what you definitely want to do, or is it more you just? Well, we want to make a vinyl. We want to make a vinyl album. So you know, we're going to get the ten songs together. Um, you know, we may have done this already, but we just haven't been able to get together with the COVID and stuff. So yeah, we're going to eventually make a vinyl album. That's what we're going to do. Um, and whether it comes out as a, as a uh, CD or anything that that's in the hands of the record company, I guess. Um, we are um, going to play a song now for people listening. Um, King of rock and roll. It, um, is it about a kind of, what is it about an aging muso who still has a bit of hubris about him? Is that what it's about? What's it about? You know what? That's exactly what it's about. I first started writing it about Bon Scott, but then I thought about it and I went, well, I don't really know enough about him on a like mutual level to be making assumptions or whatever, you know, because he was the, you know, he was our king of rock and roll, no doubt about it. He's a lot of people's king of rock and roll. Um, so then it just morphed into other people. 
And exactly how you explain that is good. Can you write that down and send it to me so I can <laughs> and sound intelligent? An aging musician with a, with a bit of hubris about him. Is that, is that, have you seen people like that a lot? Have you? Uh, I'm one of them. You're one of them? Really? Yeah. Well, I don't know what hubris means, but what does hubris mean? Well, a bit of kind of like self-importance and, and yeah, so basically a bit of self-importance and, and, over-respect for oneself, I guess. Oh, I don't have an over-respect. I do have self-importance. So, no, it, well, then you're half right. It's, it's like, you know, someone who might have had a couple of hits, but they didn't really get any further. They may have hit the drugs and the drink and that, but they've still got people that want to see them play, you know, and and they're happy to do that stuff. And there's plenty of those uh going around you know and a lot of those people you know that don't have hits anymore may have could have and i know some that have still writing good songs they just don't have the platform anymore and people just really want to hear what they know yeah and sadly that's how people live now and especially in rock and roll because i don't want to kill it off for the everybody but you know, the real fans of rock and roll are 40 and up, you know. I'm sure there's 18-year-olds that like it, but not as many as when I was 18, that's for sure. Yeah. 18 yeah. is what they did. Hey, let me run out and close this door. And, and, and we'll listen to the song. We'll play the song for the people listening. The King that's of Rock and Roll!
Oh. Got a white line fever. Going to run, land down under. Going to turn around the corner, way down yonder. <laughs> and I'm not even going to try to rhyme anymore. <laughs> Michael Monroe here for White Line Fever. You get a chance, come and check us out live. We're going to rock your socks off and whatever, rock like fuck. That's what I say, okay? <laughs> come on down and rock on.